0: So, we are in our sermon series in the book of Luke that we are calling The Goodness of God and the Kindness of Christ. And uh, this morning, I'm going to read from chapter, Luke chapter 5. This is the Jesus healing a paralytic, and I'm, man, this is one of my favorite passages. I've always wanted to preach on it, but have not had the opportunity, and it is so perfect to set us up for kind of our bigger conversation after the service part ends. So let me go ahead and read Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men... "...were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he, referring to Jesus, saw their faith, he said, "'Man, your sins are forgiven you.' And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, "'Who is this who speaks blasphemies?' Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Jesus, um, guide us with your word. Help us to see your goodness and your kindness and your interactions with people of all shapes and sizes and stripes. And Lord, let it be a mirror that helps us to see both where we doubt or don't see your goodness toward us. But also, Lord, let it be a revealing um, exercise that helps us to see exactly how much you love us. Lord, we thank you for these things and pray this in your name. Amen. So we are going to, let's just jump into this, okay? I've, like every good sermon, um, I have uh, three points that all start with P because it's alliteration is our favorite uh, memory trick as, as preachers. But um, the first P is paralysis. Then we're going to talk about presence, and then paradox. But first, paralysis, and, and specifically this, this guy on, uh, on a bed, on a mat, who's paralyzed and is, is lowered through the, this hole in the ceiling, right? One of the reasons why I love this passage is it's so relatable but maybe not on the surface. Like, I, I don't know that any of us here right now are, are paralyzed, but how often do we come to Jesus with one problem, the thing that we, that we really think and, and want Jesus to fix for us, to solve, to heal us of, only to have him point out and deal with another problem that we either didn't really know about, didn't see, or maybe we just don't think that's really that big of a problem. Right? The narrative in here, just to put yourself in, in this guy's shoes, the narrative in here between uh, your sins are forgiven and rise and walk and the, the miracle of healing, it shifts to focusing on the Pharisees' hearts and thoughts and, and what they were wrestling with. But I've always wondered, like, what was it like to be that guy who's like, man, I didn't want to become a sermon illustration? Like, okay, thanks for the, sin, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus, but like... What, what are we doing, right? But this, and this is valid. Like, it's, it's easy to kind of, like, you know, laugh and joke. I'm not, I don't want to take away from this because there was no such thing in the ancient Near East as a white-collar job, right? This guy was probably a laborer of some kind. He was likely single. If he was paralyzed, it would he would have been a, a, a huge burden on his family, especially without modern medicine or, or technology to help and to, You know, his family and friends, his community to support him. In my experience, both about me as well as in the fifteen or so years I've been in ministry now, those who are most certain of our need are often the slowness to find healing. I don't mean our, our need in general, but if we if we are kind of sold on if, if Jesus would just fix this one thing in my life, or if this one thing were different, then I could be happy. And the more, the more we kind of hold tightly and grasp that one thing, as opposed to coming to Jesus open-handed, often the harder it is to, the longer it takes to heal. Because Jesus actually is pretty insistent on helping us see that part of the problem that we need Solved is a lack of humility and open handedness that often only comes when we are at our most paralyzed and our most desperate. Now, I want to kind of focus on that word "desperate" because it often it's it's, it's a really negative word, and I want to quote the ancient uh, theologian Inigo Montoya and say that that word does not mean what you think it means, right? Because we think we have been desperate. Maybe you're here now and you are, are thinking or you're watching on the live stream and you're thinking, well, I feel pretty desperate right now. This is a level of desperation that very few of us have, are, are, are as ordinarily and regularly aware of as this paralytic. Let me give an example. Um, Bryce and I, in this podcast that we do called Everything Just Changed, we had the opportunity to interview someone named Dr. Diane Langberg. Um, if you don't know who she is, she is an incredible, uh, very n- well known in the church world advocate for uh, those who have been victims of uh, church spiritual, emotional, sexual abuse of some kind. She even like she literally wrote the book on the topic, redeeming power and and how power works in the church. And one of the things I've noticed over the years, I, I, I had the opportunity to ask her to just speak into this observation, which is this, which is there are, there are those who come into the church who have been victims of abuse, and then there are those who, who are, out of love, want to be advocates for those victims of abuse and or are, because they are inundated with it and, and are very aware of examples of abuse, are, are very um, cautious and, and even hyperprotective. Again, all for good reasons in love. And so what I asked her was, what's amazing to me and unexpected is, is it's actually the, those who have experienced abuse directly, who are actual, like really themselves personally directly victims, who are some of the most beautifully quick and easy to trust, to be the most open when they have the most reason not to be. And I asked her, I was like, can you help me, can you explain this to me? Without skipping a beat, she says this. She says, well, they're starving. Sometimes they'll trust because they're so hungry, they need it to be okay. What she's saying here, she's describing a desperation that if, for example, if you hadn't eaten for weeks and someone hands you a cheeseburger, you're not going to ask, was this from McDonald's or Burger King? You're not going to stop to ask if this was organic. If you're gluten intolerant, you might even eat the bun. If you're a vegetarian and you're like, I, that's not really enticing to me. Um, there are a lot of paradoxes in the world, like something that's delicious to eat and not meat. Um, but I just trust your imagination to, to fill in the gaps here. My point is this. You're not going to quibble about the details. You're going to eat it. I say this because those of you who have suffered, suffered a lot, and especially if you have experienced abuse and you've you've trusted the the church, still, despite all that, you have so much to teach the rest of us about how to trust, how to ask for help, and how to let others carry you. Because the reality is we are all actually, objectively desperate, but few of us know it. This brings us to the second P in our alliteration this morning, uh, which is presence. I'm going to reread verses 18 through 19 to refresh our memory on this, because there's two observations I want to make about this. It says, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him down before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed, through the tiles, into the midst, before Jesus." So these men, they were likely friends and family. And there's two interesting things about the wording here. Like, it, like, if you're trying to write something, this, especially in English, it doesn't really come across as, like, good writing. It's like, okay, we get it, Luke. You, they were bringing him in. But the point of that, the three times it says, some form or another, as they were trying to bring him in, it's, is that it's in the imperfect tense, meaning that it's communicating a persistence a stubbornness, a try and fail, and I'm going to try again, and we're going to keep trying. You know, these are, these, are, these are people who've probably already given their paralyzed friend a ride to the doctor, to and from appointments. They've sat and listened to him. They've extended empathy and compassion. They've probably fed him and cared for him with every human means available to them. And so in one sense, they shared in his desperation. They were desperate for their friend. And they were also, as Bryce is going to talk about in a little bit here with the State of the Table section of, of this morning, they were their brother's keeper. They said, his needs are our needs. And it was a loyalty, a faithfulness to their friend or family member that created and catalyzed that compassionate persistence. But also... This, this, this kind of narrative, this little mini two-verse narrative is, has sandwiched on, on a, the front and the beginning this phrase, before Jesus. Twice, it's in here. There's no, there's no plan expressed, there's no script, there's no discussion of like, hey, when we get there, here's what we're going to ask Jesus, here's what we're going to do. There's no equation, there's no prescription, just trust, just trust that if we can get our friend into Jesus' presence, that's all we need. When you combine these two, Jesus actually kind of synthesizes these observations and he, it says in verse 20, the very first few words, it says, and when he saw their faith. This brings out this, this fact that Faith, the word pistos in the Greek, actually can be translated as faith or trust or loyalty. And so what's at play here is both a, a, a horizontal loyalty, like I just described, to his, their friend, but also a vertical trust that God is going to care for and heal their friend. Horizontal and vertical. But it's also, notice, it's plural. It says, when he saw their faith. And it might in, that, that plural might include the person on the mat, but I, the grammar doesn't seem to suggest that in this passage at least. It's actually referring to the faith of the people who brought him there. That's so good news. <laughs> That's such good news. Especially if you are somebody I was just talking about who's like experienced abuse, or you're at the end of your rope. If you are just like, I can't, Do this anymore. You don't have to. But more importantly, and and don't hear what I'm not saying these these friends and family of the guy who's paralyzed, their faith doesn't save their friend, their faithfulness brings their friend into the saving presence of Jesus. Do you hear the difference? And by the way, we're going to talk about that a lot more next week when we get to do not one, but two baptisms. And I'm so excited. It's like a Presbyterian holiday when we do baptisms. I mean, every Sunday is a Presbyterian holiday. Anyway, um, my point is this faith in the singular is actually wholly incomplete and unbiblical. Faith in the singular or in the one dimensional, i.e., either, either vertical or horizontal and not both, is incomplete. Because you don't actually fully trust the saving presence of Jesus if you're not also a loyal enough friend to persistently drag, I'm sorry, bring your friends before him. And that's the paradox. In verse 26, let me reread this one too. Oh, pay attention to the, just, the, the sheer number of, of descriptive words that are, are just hyperbolic, it's communicating that this was a really big deal, right? And amazement seized them all. It seized them. It didn't, it just wasn't there. It grabbed them, right? It seized them. And they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. You want to hear something cool? This is one of these like, really fun like, nerd moments for pastors. We get to like check this out. The word extraordinary in the Greek is paradoxa, paradox. The extraordinary thing was that something happened contrary to expectation. It was surprising. It was not what they thought. The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders were having a conniption because they were thought Jesus was blaspheming because only God can, can, can forgive sins, but also he just performed a miracle where this guy can, who, who everybody would have known, there's no way to fake this, is now walking, and it was a paradox, and they didn't know what to do with it, but they were filled with awe, and they said something extraordinary has happened. Now, this morning, if you're a Christian, uh, then that part for you it probably isn't a paradox because if by definition, if you're a Christian, you did do believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully human, right? And and so, what is the paradox for us in a passage like this? Well, this is probably you probably notice that I'm, I'm I'm leading up to and paving the way for this because if the scribes and the Pharisees refuse to accept the paradox of Christ's divinity, our paradox is that we refuse to accept the church's necessity. We refuse to accept the church's necessity. Let me illustrate this by asking a question. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have heard this phrase that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship? It's really good on like a book jacket or the, I don't know, um, a tweet, I guess. Or how about the phrase, the church isn't a building, it's a community? Let me tell you, after the very long uh, time we were unable to meet because we don't have a building. Uh, I want to sinfully harm somebody anytime I hear that now. Because community would be a lot easier if we had a building, that's for sure. Okay. Whew. Anyway, my point in bringing this out is what's implicit, what is assumed in these statements is that church, the church, is a means to an end. That really, you know, it it's actually not that important. Except that, well, yeah, the really important thing is Jesus and therefore, you know, yeah, we can kind of put up with and tolerate church or or we can treat it like a discardable or replaceable option depending on whether it works for you or for your kids or for your career or your calendar and other things, I'm sure, start with a sound. Don't hear what I'm not saying in this, though. I'm not saying that the church is more important than Jesus, and I'm not saying that participation in the local church saves you. That's not not it. But it does put you smack in the midst of Jesus' saving presence, because the church is an end in and of itself, and the means to that end. You can't separate them. It's a paradox. And this is true, this is, we know this, because this is where, in, throughout all of Scripture, it's explicit in the New Testament, that Jesus, this is where Jesus promises to most fully and especially be until he returns and reunites with the new heavens and the new earth. So here's, I guess, what I'm trying to say uh, this morning. In short, the paradoxical kindness of Christ is an arranged marriage. I want to make a toast. I want to make a toast to the bride and the groom in that, right? The toast to the bride is that none of us knew ahead of time that we would be family. And I know you all have mixed feelings about that. Me too. We're stuck with each other. Quirks and warts and sins and all. But you know what? That's really good news because as much as you are, like, uncomfortable with the crazy uncle, turns out we're all the crazy uncle or the crazy aunt, right? Right? And if that's still a problem, then you're not desperate enough yet. You haven't come to the end of yourself yet or looked in the mirror, spiritually speaking. It's also, welcome in this toast to the bride, it's a package deal. There is no meaningful relationship with God without a loyalty to, sorry, there's no meaningful relationship with the groom without a loyalty to the bride, right? My wife, her name's Hannah. If you don't like her, we're probably not going to be real close. You know what I mean? Like, and let me tell you, if you you use my wife as a means of getting to me, we're going to fight. It's not going to go well. (gasps) I'm going to be mad because you're treating someone that I love as a means to an end. Jesus is a lot more loving and merciful than me, so he's not going to fight you. He's going to die for you. But let's toast the groom because this is the good news here. Jesus is paradoxical in his kindness and part one of the implications of that is your disappointment, your confusion, your discouragement, your doubt, your struggling over reality being contrary to your expectations. That's actually not a sign of his absence. Far from it is the guarantee of his presence. It is the guarantee that his kindness will surpass your wildest of expectations, and it is the prelude to deeper healing because he loves you way too much to fix the circumstances or the conditions that are paralyzing you and driving you to be desperate enough to accept his embrace. And lastly, Jesus is here, as in here, right now, among us, and he is forgiving and he is healing, whether you get anything out of this or not, whether you are conscious of it or not, whether you explicitly invite him in or not. I would recommend that. It's pretty great. But his love for you transcends your agency beyond allowing yourself to be carried here. Thank God. As we transition to communion, I, I, I was gonna put this this quote in my sermon, but technically now that we're transitioning to communion, it counts toward the time to take to set up communion and not the length of the sermon. But I want to point out and, and like share with you this quote that I when I when I read this while preparing for this sermon, it hit me between the eyes so hard I like literally just sat in my chair and stared at a wall. It's from a theologian named Arthur A. Just Jr. in his commentary on this passage. He says, by placing the miracle of forgiveness first, Jesus shows that the means by which forgiveness is offered in the church will be the miracles. I underlined a bunch of stuff there, but that definite article, that's actually the author's stressing and emphasis. It will be the miracles of the new era of salvation, preaching, catechesis, baptism, and Eucharist, which is another word for communion. Miracles of physical healing will taper off in the New Testament era, but healing will be ongoing in the church age through the bestowal of forgiveness in preaching and in the sacraments. And these means of grace will continue until the resurrection of the body from the dead. What he's saying there is by virtue of the sheer existence of the church, global, and even, yes, this church, local, by the sheer virtue of that existence, it is a miracle on par with and equivalent to making a paralyzed man walk. And the means by which we experience and, and procure that healing, another P word, is, is worship, is being here, is partaking of the bread and wine in community. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He says, this bread is my body. It is broken for you. I did not just come to be broken so that you could have access to the Father, but in order to bring his saving presence, to bring the presence of God to you, I became broken in your stead. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's poured out for the remission of sins. In other words, for the forgiveness of sins. That's actually the root of your problem. <laughs> but in love, I am glad and happy and joyful in giving it up to reconcile my bride, so that, because I will never leave her, the church. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. We proclaim, we procure, and yes, it's a paradox, but that kindness has the power to heal, has the power through forgiveness to actually address the things that we don't even know we need. That's how good Jesus is. Let's pray.